HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. All right, test, welcome test, back test. to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Kat Johnson, and we are broadcasting live today from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, the culinary village here at Marion Square. Um, we're bringing you all sorts of conversations with chefs, with farmers, with winemakers, with festival goers. Um, this is our last day of broadcasting. As you can tell, my voice is a little bit shot, so we're in the home stretch now. Um, but yesterday we did a panel focusing on some southern foodways and specific crops that have been either lost or at the brink of extinction and what it's taken to bring bring those back. Specifically, we talked to Sean Brock, Glenn Roberts, Jerome Dixon, and Doc Bill Thomas about the efforts to revive Sapelo Island Purple Ribbon Sugarcane and to start making syrup from that again. Um, and today I want to do a very similar conversation, but we're going to be talking specifically about the uh, Carolina African runner peanut. And I have some really awesome guests here who are experts on the subject to talk about it with me. Uh, first up, we have Nat Bradford, who is a landscape architect and farmer from Seneca, South Carolina. He has experience breeding heirloom crops and he maintains his family's 170 year old Bradford watermelon, which is uh, a legendary watermelon, I would say. Uh, he is now growing the Carolina African runner peanut and selling the variety to chefs. Welcome, Nat. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Um, and also I have Brian Ward, Dr. Brian Ward. He is a research scientist at Clemson University, specializing in organic vegetables. He was the first to grow the Carolina African runner peanut in this century. And more importantly, he did his undergrad at Auburn. So War Eagle. War Eagle. <laughs> um, and lastly, we have we have Forrest Parker. He is the chef at the Vendu Hotel in Charleston, and he leads culinary tours of the city through his venture, Undiscovered Charleston. He's very involved with the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to the restoration of historic grains and vegetables specific to the agricultural history of South Carolina. And he cooked for a fundraising dinner in support of and using the Carolina African Runner Peanut. Um, so I want to start with this fundraiser for us and like how you got the idea to do that. Uh, well, <laughs> um, there was a uh, uh, there was an initial um, article in the Post and Courier, uh, I believe, written by Hannah Raskin about the uh, the return of the African Runner Peanut. And uh, the program really was in its infancy. Um, 
and uh, you know it's just one of those eureka moments uh, you have where uh, the planets align and, and uh, you know the bells go off and uh, you just say you know I need I need to be involved with this um, so uh, I reached out to uh, some friends Dr. David Shields at the University of South Carolina um, and suggested uh, you know if I could be uh, of assistance in any way and uh, in terms of helping to, uh, you know, tell the story or um, anything I could do to help raise awareness of uh, the important work that um, uh, what is arguably one of the, the few cooperative uh, relationships in the history between uh, University of South Carolina and Clemson, uh, besides the relationships they have on Saturdays in the fall. Which are a little bit more contentious. Uh, slightly, yeah. And... Uh, uh, working with uh, Chef Frank Lee uh, at the Old Village Post House, um, you know, we said, well, let's have a, a supper and, and really kind of highlight, um, you know, not just the, uh, the work of uh, the Clemson Organic Research Extension, but also specifically the, the work of Dr. Brian Ward in, in uh, working to restore the peanut. Uh, and I think at the, the time, at the, the dinner, we got... Uh, I think it was a pound, maybe a, a generous pound of uh, uh, the actual peanuts, um, you know. And of course, I'm trying to think: how do I do loaves and fishes and, and feed a whole dining room full of people? And um, you know, we pulled out George Washington Carver and, and did everything we could to, to maximize the little bit uh, we had and folded in along the ways, and um, and then you know, uh, highlighted some other uh, historic. You know, dishes and, and grains, vegetables, and legumes from uh, from South Carolina's history, and in a lot of ways, uh, that one evening um, was responsible. You know, working with uh, with Nat and uh, and Brian really was uh, responsible for uh, where we're headed with the, the upcoming revival restaurant at the Vendu. Um, so, uh, Brian, I want to turn to you and ask you: When was the first time that you came in contact with these seeds? Uh, well, uh, approximately, I think it was like September, maybe 2013, Dr. Merle Shepard came, and um, he's a retired uh, entomologist at uh, Clemson um, uh, Cultural Research and Education Center. And um, he said that there was a friend of his, I didn't really know David Shields at the time, and he said, one of my friends, my colleagues, has some seed. And uh, they're very important, they're very special, and he wants to know if he can trust you to grow them out. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And so uh, that's the first time. And then I grew them out, and you want to tell the whole story? Sure. Well, I want to ask you, how many seeds were there total, and how many were you given? Well, so it all, it's all, it, it, well, the history of it goes back to 1690, you know, so it's a long story. And so, um, over the years, the last time it was reported in any kind of scientific literature was like 1914, something to that effect. And they were, they were in North Carolina, um, but, uh, and they were used for a, like a control group uh, against some modern lines that were breeding as far as like uh, runner peanuts. So there's like many different types of peanuts, many different types of peanuts. Um, and so these were some control groups and their uh, studies and um, 1910, 1930 was the last time I think they were actually commercially grown ever, and they did they just dis disappeared. Um, and so, but it all kind of boils down to um, you know the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation. Once Carolina Gold Rice was established, uh, reestablished, 
uh, than the chefs like Forrest Parker and many of his peers actually uh, wanted like to capture uh, all the food that was a part of that food way, you know, back in those days. You know, Matt Bradford, that's why you're here, man. You know what I'm saying? Because your family's been growing food for South Carolina for hundreds of years, you know, same, same thing. And so the peanut was lost uh, because it was replaced. And so um, uh, they came with me with uh, uh, 20 peanuts. They said I was special seed. And later that I, I, did, I didn't find out until later that there was only 40 seed. So you were entrusted with half of the remaining seeds on the planet Earth. Yeah, that wow. was pretty cool, man. You know, you got to hear. No, that's pretty cool. So, but I didn't know that at the time. But they said they were special, so I treated them special. And um, the first year we had uh, twelve germinate, and of the twelve, we had um, approximately twelve twelve hundred seed. The first year, um, uh, you know, uh, Nat Geo came out, you know. Uh, they did a piece on it, and it was it was it was good. Uh, the next year, we planted um, 900 of the 1,200 seed. Okay, and um, it was it was actually really amazing. This, I mean, this, this this small little peanut, just a small little peanut. I mean, I I, and I didn't know what I was getting. I'm a vegetable grower, so I you know t- typically peanuts are like row crops. So I didn't know what I was, but but it was special. So the second year, we took 900 and planted 900 of the 1,200 seed. And we, we were able to get approximately 60,000 seed. Wow. So before I get more into the current state of the African runner peanut and where, where, where we are right now, I kind of want to get more context in what it, what it means when we're talking about heirloom crops and ones that have done well historically and others that have been lost and why. So Nat, I kind of want to ask you for a little bit more of context and an example Tell us a little bit about the Bradford watermelon and, and how that has uh, been preserved by your family for so many years. Although, even though it's not necessarily the best watermelon for maybe shipping and um, mm-hmm. you know commercial purposes. Sure, thanks, Kat. Um, so the Bradford watermelon, it disappeared from cultivation about a hundred years ago, kind of like the peanut. Maybe a slightly different story, um, but what happened was after the Civil War agriculture was completely different in South Carolina, all throughout the South. And um, there was this, this survival uh, mechanism that kicked in. Folks, my family, I'm sure, we were just sustenance farming, and it went back to uh, truck crops, and um, you would sell the surplus. Well, if you were a kid growing up in that generation, you didn't want to stay on the farm. You wanted to get the heck out of there and find prosperity and um, industrial mills, textile mills and things started popping up. Uh, the military um, started drawing kids away from the farms. Cities started to grow and expand and you had to feed these people. There was not enough farmers producing out of sustenance farming to provide for these growing populations and all these kids that are leaving the farm. And um, and. So really, that's about the turn of the century, turn of the um, early 1900s. Clemson was one of the programs that enacted or put in, into motion this uh, extension service, and it was really to, like, to start serving these needs of hungry populations and cities that needed food with less farmers. How can we get the farmers that are here to produce more food? Shipability became a major issue. Flavor was not the number one thing. It wasn't this conscious decision let's forget flavor and let's focus on shipping it was just 
we've got to get food and we've got to be able to ship it and it's got to be able to last. And so the focus was intentionally on shipping. And our watermelon, you know, as many old Southern crops, all of this diversity that was local and passed down family to family, father to son, um, that became endemic to certain regions, if they didn't have those attributes for shipability, if they couldn't feed the masses, couldn't move about, they just discontinued. Seed catalogs started carrying the seeds that could ship. So the farms that could grow 300 acres of watermelons and ship them to the northeast, that was money. They could survive. They could make a living. The family would save their own seeds of their favorite sorts because they're saving their own seeds. The seed catalogs aren't going to carry those seeds. And eventually, by 1920, the Bradford watermelon, for example, disappeared from any of the catalogs. They weren't available anymore. And that was what happened with a lot of our flavor. And um, we're finally at a point in time where we're missing that flavor. We want it back. And we're going out into the hills and into the old farms and wherever we can find these old seeds that are tied to flavor, and we're trying to bring those back. And that's the case with this Carolina African runner peanut. It's a flavorful peanut. It barely survived. And when you think about the 12 seeds, I kind of think of that as like the 12 apostles. You know, we're bringing them back from literally like 12 peanuts will fit right there in the palm of your hand. Now we're growing acreage of it in a matter of years. That's incredible. And it takes this crossover collaboration with the extension, with Clemson, with the food historians like David Shields that are bringing the stuff back. But then it takes these awesome chefs that are going to get that first bite onto the public's palate. That's really where the success of these, these uh, repatriations is going to exist is getting it onto your palate. People have to love it and experience it. They're going to want it, and that's going to drive the farmers to grow it again. Is there a specific reason, um, similar to the shipability issues with the Bradford watermelon, is there a clear-cut reason as to why the African runner peanut um, was not commercially viable? That'd probably be a good one for you. I, I have a feeling it has a lot to do with not very good farming practices, overplanting in the same spots and perpetuation of diseases. But Okay, okay. Um, uh, to answer that question, um, uh, the peanut is vulnerable to virus, okay? So that's one of the things. But um, more importantly, as, as you see a demand for food, Okay, uh, scientists and breeders and farmers actually uh, want to extend the yield per acre. Okay, so um, this peanut doesn't necessarily have the yields that uh, generations of breeding have uh, demonstrated in your, our current yields uh, with the run, with runner peanuts. Mm -hmm. So, uh, although there may have been a lack of focus on flavor, okay, and so therefore that's why this peanut is being talked about today okay so related to that question because yes. there are these certain issues why was it important for um you and your team at clemson as part of an extension program to help with the revival of the peanut and not just like hand it off to farmers for example well in order for in order for what we, so what we do at clemson we uh a lot of times we take we do research and 
kind of take the blunt, the, 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 the blunt of failure, okay, and ahead uh, before we release something. So we want to fail uh, on purpose, so we know what everything does not work. Uh, what, what everything when when you grow it, we want to fail, so that way the growers don't fail. And so taking this project on, we basically proved everything that works and what does not work. Um, and that moving forward so that we've delivered seed to Nat Bradford and to about 100 farms across the United States. Um, so there, there's, the issues are virus is one, um, some disease, but uh, the flavor is there and we're, we're, we're pushing it hard to uh, uh, get it out to many growers. We have people in Virginia, North Carolina, and uh, University of uh, California at Davis. They're in particular looking at um, um, allergies, food allergies. We have uh, oil companies, uh, peanut oil uh, for culinary grade, not necessarily for just like frying and so on that, but it's like like culinary grade supreme oils. Um, and that's where it's at, you know? And so we've, we're talking with uh, uh, Nat on a smaller scale, you know, like, you know, hundreds of acres versus thousands of acres that are gonna be hopefully working with uh, peanut butter and candy and so on and so forth. So um, I don't see. I mean, I think I think we have a good niche with this with this original because I mean this was the original peanut. Yeah. So let's elaborate on that a little bit more. How does this peanut differ from the peanuts that we buy in the store currently? Well, the uh, the African runner peanut, Carolina African runner peanut, or uh, carp, uh, as it's come to be known uh, for short. Um, is small and diminutive in size. It's typically a, a two-nut pod. Um, and I think that's one of the, the challenges that, uh, that Nat has faced uh, because the, the size is so small in terms of trying to get it through commercial shellers, um, mm. it just falls right through. And so, uh, you know, that really kind of requires, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of uh, patience. Um, so a lot of times I just call Nat Job. But... Uh, uh, you know, I think Nat's had some success using smaller scale USDA graders, but that requires that he shell it like three pounds at a time, uh, you know, or that, uh, you know, his, his family's working on it with him. So, I mean, when you talk about a passion piece and a labor of love, it really is. Um, and so, you know, in a restaurant setting, sometimes the costs that are involved to support that uh, can seem prohibitive, but you think, you know, you're really literally supporting someone's family. So now I want to ask you about actually farming the peanut and can you tell me kind of what information you got from Clemson University, from uh, Dr. Brian Ward to help you have a successful like first harvest? Sure. Um, so I think going off of Brian's research, the first couple of years growing it, you know, I'm guessing y'all didn't have um, ma big machinery out there harvesting, uh, you know, 900 peanuts to first. You know, this is all, it's, so it doesn't really translate to where we're going at the beginning. This is handwork. You're hand digging these things. You're hand picking the peanuts off. Um, actually, Forrest, you know, I visited Forrest, uh, and he gave me just this tiny little, like, half-pint jar of peanuts. I grew that little plot out. It was all hand planted, hand weeded, hand harvested, hand shelled. I mean, this is to get to the scale where 
you're in hundreds of acres or thousands of acres, it takes a number of years of scaling it up and there's not a lot of infrastructure in place in that middle ground. There's not. Um, so what we found, of course, I mean, I signed up because I love plants. I love, you know, somebody gives me a seed, I'm excited about it and I'm going to want to grow it and, and work with it. But you don't know what you're really getting into until, you've, until you're there in real time. You know, we harvest this peanut and um, I'm going through the field and I'm realizing, crap, there's a lot of peanuts all over the ground. You know, I call Brian up and, yeah, the peanut is so small, um, the, the combines, they're missing the peanuts or they're so small they're blowing out with the debris. Mm. And um, I'll, I will say this, though, the harvester that we used the first year, we grew one acre we harvested it. It was a very old combine. It didn't have a lot of adjustment to it, which is probably like a lot of the equipment at Clemson Research, old antiquated stuff. This past year, we had primo, like state-of-the-art combines that you could dial everything in, and we harvested just fine. But we got hammered by diseases, so we only harvested 10% of our crop. I went the organic route with all 11 acres, which that's how we're trying to do things. But I realized, you know, you had a rough year with the rain and everything on your farm. They didn't, they didn't have a harvest. I don't think there's really many other people out there that are growing it. There might be some backyard farmers that are dabbling with it a little bit. But here again, we could have been down to, to like scratching the bottom of the bucket again and starting from 2013 if we didn't get a harvest on my farm. So next year, I'm not going to play around with this precious seed and risk losing it all. We're going to grow one or two acres tops organic. The rest of it we're going to do as a seed increase, and we'll grow conventional methods. That way we can at least ensure that we have this seed in volume to replant if something happens. Can you tell me why you would want to grow it organically at all? I want to grow everything organically, and, and not because I want to be organic. That's a philosophy. It's a way of life. You know, I look at the soil and I think my health is directly and intrinsically tied to that soil. So the healthier that soil, the healthier I'm going to be. And so I want that soil to be cared for. You know, good soil, good seeds, good food, good health. Um, so Forrest, I wanted to ask, uh, go, turn back to you and ask you some more questions about the flavor of the peanut um and as a chef you know how are you telling the story of the peanut to guests and how are you you know convincing them that this is the the better peanut for them to have in a dish well it raises the bigger question of of uh you know where is the value uh as a, a chef or as a diner uh you know paying twenty dollars a pound for a uh, a peanut, and how does that translate to getting it onto a plate? So you've got to be really selective in in how you're using it, uh, because a lot of times we're spending more on the peanuts than we are on the fish. So there's this whole paradigm shift about how we're we're doing thing how we're doing things in a uh, kitchen, and uh, even getting it on the plate uh, in a small way allows us to tell that story. And a lot of times for guests coming to Charleston. Uh, and dining with us, you know, that's what they're going to take away. They're going to remember the story. Uh, and when they actually uh, taste 
the runner peanut on a regular basis, I say it's it's small and diminutive in size, but when roasted, it's the most intensely peanutty peanut I've ever had in my life. Uh, and it can be really, really sweet, and I think a lot of people uh, tend to agree with me on that. But uh, you've really got to be creative, and, and like I said, uh, you know, going into George Washington Carver is, you know, the research has been done uh, 100 years ago uh, at Tuskegee about, you know, what are all the myriad ways and uses that you can use a peanut, um, you know, and, and to really dig into that research and say, you know, well, I've got a bunch of peanut shells, what can I get out of them and how can I use it? And, you know, we're making peanut bitters and, uh, and using those in cocktail programs and, uh, and things like that, but really trying to maximize it. Um, you know, you talk about tasting something specific to the history of South Carolina. I can't imagine much more than, uh, you know, tasting the quintessential peanut that defined the region for 200 years that uh, was considered extinct for 100 years, uh, brought back Lazarus-like from a handful of seeds. Thanks, Brian. And, uh, you know, and, and now is in, uh, uh, you know, a, a seed increase mode where it's being grown outside the region, which is fantastic. I know Nat's had some uh, difficulties with uh, diseases, but the flip side of that is that when we're talking about a lot of these heirloom and, and land grace, uh, you know, vegetables, grains, and legumes is that, uh, many of them will have resistance to particular types of diseases or to different growing uh, conditions. You know, some are water resistant, some are, uh, uh, you know, perform better in drier conditions. Uh, and in a, at a time of increasing climactic uncertainty, uh, as a chef, it makes me really uh, happy and proud to have partners like Ryan and that because it gives me a, a palette of flavors that are historic to work from, uh, but it also means that we'll continue, be able to continue to have these flavors moving forward. Um, so a couple times you guys have mentioned allergies, and obviously we know peanut allergy is a big deal for a lot of people. So maybe Dr. Brian Ward, can you talk a little bit about if there's any research involved in in this specific peanut and trying to find out if there might be a way around peanut allergies? Uh, from what I understand, uh, uh, allergy to peanuts is based on certain protein, um, protein anomalies in the peanut. And um, that's what people are te technically um, allergic to. So um, there is one uh, company associated with University of California at Davis that I've sent seed to, and they, they're doing a profile of the proteins in the peanut to see whether or not uh, there's some kind of uh, they can work with some kind of um, uh, vaccine. Uh, that's basically that I've, all I've worked with at this time. That's really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you as well: Are there other uh, crops that you're working with at the moment, uh, similarly to the African runner peanut, or is this was this like a very like once in a million story? Uh, once. <laughs> that's pretty funny, actually. Uh, well, I mean, um, there's a lot of things I'm working with right now that are uh, kind of like once-in-a-lifetime type of things. Uh, 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 purple straw wheat is my next big thing on the horizon. I was given approximately uh, 250 grams, which is slightly more than a half a pound. And we're, we're, we're in our third year now, and we're probably going to be able to produce enough, uh, probably tonnage this year. Well, we'll be able to get it out there to growers, okay? 
Um, and that's that's kind of sponsored through uh, the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation. Um, the peanut, all the peanut work has basically primarily been sponsored through the South Carolina Department of Agriculture and the South Carolina Peanut Board. Okay, um, but this work is something slightly different. Uh, there's another one called White La Moss wheat. You know, it's a soft wheat. So there's that, that, those are two right now. Um, there's three lines of um, uh, Southern Pea, uh, and they were given PI, PI numbers, and then officially named by the USDA. And there were USA, uh, USDA uh, Southern Pea lines um, uh, 1136, 1137, 1138. Uh, and they were, they originated from the coastal, coastal climates of South Carolina. Uh, and each one has a certain uh, uh, profile as far as like being water tolerant or drought tolerant or, uh, and what they actually do to the soil, what organisms they actually increase, beneficial organisms in the soil. So, I mean, there's, I mean, that's that's a whole that's a whole box that we, we 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 need to sit down and have a whole day for what's new on the horizon. It's basically about bringing it back, you know, keep history alive, you know. And I kind of want to ask, all, yeah, go ahead first. We're we're really excited as chefs, uh, in particular, uh, about the eleven thirty eight. No, just kidding. But the uh, the purple straw wheat, mm. um, in particular, because the purple straw wheat uh, was the definitive soft winter white or winter um, uh, wheat uh, that uh, Charleston was so well known for our pastries uh, for a hundred years. And classic Charleston dishes like, for instance, Lady Baltimore cake uh, would have been made with this purple straw wheat. Um, and, uh, you know, you think about a, a region or a city whose culinary tradition is in many ways defined by pastry to actually be cooking with the wheat that made those original pastries uh, so you can say you know I'm gonna make a biscuit and this biscuit is probably more historically accurate than you know something that came out of a you know a bag from the, the grocery store um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about what you're speaking to is that when people are trying to cook historical recipes they're not necessarily able to replicate them because of these lost crops are there any other examples of that um, Maybe with the peanut itself. I know that there's, um, is it the ground, ground nut cake or something that was? Well, that's, that's two, so there's two different things there. So okay. there's the, the Apios Americanus, which is the American ground nut, uh, which is a, uh, historically a, you know, kind of a wild and foraged uh, Native American food. And that uh, is the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the first farmer in history to cultivate that so it's not a wild and cultivated thing mm. um, but it's a, a legume uh, to where you can eat the uh, the tuber or the root but you can also eat the the plant itself is that right uh, but the uh, what's referred to is the groundnut cake and in Western African tradition groundnuts are kind of another name for peanuts mm -hmm. and so the the groundnut cake is a classic confectionery uh, specific to Charleston, uh, you know, the vendors would have sold them on the street down at the market uh, for a long, long time. And uh, groundnut cakes were commonly made with the African runner peanut. So, you know, fast forward 150 years and we got Snickers bars. Uh, but it's, you know, it pales in comparison to what, um, you know, you've got this intensely, intensely uh, peanutty peanut and, you know, you make a... Uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, a, 
uh, praline out of it, um, and it's going to be a really pronounced and delicious flavor. So it's just a, a kind of a different approach. Nat, do you want to talk about the ground nut that Forrest just mentioned? Sure, happy to. So um, the ground nut, which is a native, heard of the term, pre-first contact food. It's, it's one, again, that Forrest was talking about, wild foraged, but it's, um, and it's, just, it's an historical food to North America. Uh, native Americans, this was one of the foods that I've even been told that the early colonists would not have survived when they brought their European seeds over those first few winters if the Native Americans hadn't introduced them to the groundnut. Um, it's high in protein. It's like a, it's about the size of a new potato, um, but it has 19% protein, which is three times higher than the modern-day potato. So it's a real food. And you find this, it produces an abundance. It's a native so it's already hardwired for success where we live. The pests and diseases and things, it's already built to, do, to kind of perform exceptionally well under, under those kinds of conditions. And um, the other neat thing is it grows in ditches. It grows in swampland, places that you wouldn't normally think that you can grow uh, food in. And so it's, what's important about this is there's a lot of foods that are wild foraged, that are um, really big. Ramps. I was thinking about ramps. So ramps is one that's really popular, but it's being over foraged. Mm -hmm. It's disappearing to the point of some of the locations it's gone, doesn't exist anymore. And so bringing some of these crops out of the wild and applying an agriculture to them is actually a, a method of ensuring their survivability. It takes the pressure off the wild forage allows the native population to exist but also brings the price down a little bit so the wild foragers won't have the incentive to over harvest if we're growing it in cultivation you get the prices down it's available more readily and it's going to ensure the success of that species from being over harvested so groundnuts is one of those that we're pioneering as a new agricultural crop it's not a new food but it's a new crop is that something that you would work on uh, with Clemson? Uh, anytime a grower has a need, um, that's what I'm here for. So, plain and simple. All right, well, we have to wrap up, but this has been a really awesome conversation, and I feel like I've learned a whole lot. And I am so thankful to all of you guys for coming and talking to us. Um, once again, I am here with Dr. Brian Ward from Clemson University. Nat Bradford, who is a farmer um, and the keeper of the Bradford watermelon, and Chef Forrest Parker of um, the Vindu Hotel in Charleston. Thanks to all of you once again. Thanks, Kat. Good to see you, everybody. All right, we're going to be right back in just a moment with more live radio from Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Springer Mountain Farms, Big Green Egg, the Julia Child Foundation, and Wisconsin Cheese. Once again, I'm Kat Johnson, and stay tuned. We'll be right back.